This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Now we're gonna do, oh wait, let's do another test. For those of you that were just in Sunday school this morning, adults, we're gonna do a test over what you just heard in Sunday school an hour ago. No, I'm just kidding, we're not gonna do that. I don't even remember what I preached last week, so we're gonna just move forward. I didn't, Mike did, that's why I don't remember it. (laughs) Hebrews chapter six, verse 13, follow along if you would. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner people or inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. To the Hebrew believers who received this letter in that New Testament era, the encouragement and the history lessons and the reviews of that which they should have already known, the clear and dire warnings also of false conversions and the apostate living made it very challenging for them even to read the continuing portion of the letter, and yet this is such an encouraging word. And so the church, the gathered Christians, heard the letter read to them. They needed it, just as we have heard this letter read to us, and we need it. That's the great joy and the wonder of God's timeless, inerrant word that regardless of when it's read, it is applicable at all times. These people who heard it the first time were persecuted Christians. They were active in their local church, even though it didn't look like this necessarily, their fellowship of believers who gathered regularly. They had put a lot on the line to claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they questioned a lot at this point. And some were struggling with understanding what they really were buying into. Some were struggling to stay firm in their faith and to stay solidly grounded And what's happening in this letter is a theological fencing is taking place. Now, when I say fencing, I'm not talking about the swords. I'm talking about something that we've used. Actually, the term has been used. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper here as a body of believers, we have a fencing moment prior to that. And and that's really odd. I I find it interesting that there are many who have grown up in Baptist church have never heard the term fencing the table or fencing that. And so what you're seeing here is a fencing taking place. Now, we'll we'll make it as simple as I can. If you have a, a fence that's put up in your backyard, why is that fence put up in your backyard? It's maybe because you have a pet. Maybe you have a dog or an animal that you want to uh, keep in the yard and it makes it a little more convenient. You can just open the door and let, him get, let the dog go out, perhaps. So a fence is designed to keep something secure that you want to keep safe. To keep something from running away, perhaps, and going somewhere you didn't intend for them to go. But a fence also is developed to keep certain things out. So maybe the fence in your yard is designed to keep your animals in and at the same time to keep other animals out. 
It's protected and it's secure. So theological fencing is this. Is, uh, this is why the challenge is to know more than the theme verse of the week. To understand the deep understanding and the teachings of the word of God, to, to understand that which we should have known as Paul, uh, Paul, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote Hebrews, as the writer had referenced prior, the things you should know, you should be further along than now. And, and even Paul and, and Peter and others who have written New Testament letters, the, the instruction to believers in that first century, the reminder of that which we should know, that which we should know, that should change how we live our lives and how we fulfill our calling before the Lord. And so the Hebrew writer does the very same thing, writing and teaching and training and correcting and, and saying there are just certain things that are true because they're true and it doesn't really matter if you don't like that they're true. They remain true regardless. So we're going to build the fence to make sure you don't get off the, <laughs> the I guess, off the property here, theologically, finding yourself questioning everything. Now, there's not a person in the room that as a Christian, and there are, I know there are non-Christians in the room, but there's not a Christian in the room that at some point hasn't questioned some of the things you've read in Scripture or at least questioned some of the things you've heard from a pastor or a teacher or questioned some of the things you may have even, even just heard from family members and others who claim to know the Lord. You, that question of, is that true? Is that really true? And so hopefully anytime you have those questions, you're not going to Google for the answers and you're not going to YouTube for some YouTube preacher for the answers, but you actually are going to the Word of God, which is that unchangeable, immutable, and inerrant gift that we have been given as that ultimate fence and test of all that is true. Theological liberalism is a real thing. It's really hard to talk about theological liberalism, especially in a culture that only thinks liberalism is something to do with uh, Republicans and Democrats and political parties. It has so much more to do with that, and it's, by the way, so much more important than any of that. Theological, you, you can be politically conservative and morally liberal. Do you know anybody like that? You know anybody that votes the way you want them to, but they do things with other people they're not married to? You ever know someone like that? I knew it'd get real quiet. You know somebody that theologically is liberal where, you know, your truth and my truth and our truth are all truth, but maybe they're conservative in another way? I'm talking about theological conservatism and biblical worldviews. It matters. And that's why the fence must continue to be built and repaired. So in fencing the teaching, the pastor, the elder, the overseer, all the same office, by the way, is verbally building walls of protection and doctrinal fidelity. Otherwise, churches tend to drift into what is known and has been called theological liberalism. Theological liberalism eventually removes the capital T from the word truth, which is found manifest in Christ, and replaces it with a pluralistic postmodern truthiness, which ultimately is grounded in nothing. The Hebrews receiving this letter are not there. Yet, but they're drifting, they're wavering, they're reconfiguring their theology, they're settling, they are fearful because they are persecuted and when the pressure is squeezing from the outside, you better know what you stand for or you'll fall for just about anything. 
And some, as we talked about last week, who had they taken a poll among the church members, they would have said, well, that person is definitely saved and a Christian. Some of those have seemingly abandoned the faith only to create more questions for the truly redeemed who now may wonder if their salvation is revocable, not recognizing that those that they thought were saved that now claim they are not because deconstruction is not a 21st century thing. That's been going on since this century we read about. Exvangelicalism wasn't a term used back then, but it was prominent. But what you are discovering is those who are deconstructed and no longer believe the truth never truly believe to begin with. And if you didn't listen to last week's sermon by Pastor Mike, it was one of the best sermons on that, if not the best sermon on that passage of scripture of apostasy I've ever heard. Let me just tell you this. Let me, let me see if I can word this right. I heard a pastor use this illustration. If you remember the story in the New Testament where Jesus performed his first public miracle, we don't talk about this in Baptist life very much because we get real nervous, but he went to a wedding and there was a party going on and they ran out of wine. And Jesus' mother comes up to him being a typical mama and knows, says, hey Jesus, you need to fix this problem. I'm paraphrasing. So Jesus miraculously turned the water into wine, right? Had Jesus been a Southern Baptist, he'd have turned the wine into water, but that's a different story. So Jesus turned the water into wine, and the wine that was then made available for the rest of the wedding party and wedding celebration, as those who took a sip, took the sip, they said to the owner of the, of the wine vats, they said, wow, you are doing this opposite of everybody else normally. Boy, this is a major paraphrase, but normally at the weddings like this, you bring the good wine out first, and then when everybody's taste buds are deadened, you bring out the cheap box wine that you bought at, you know, the gas station. But you've done it just the opposite. You put the cheap stuff out first, and the good stuff you brought out last, and we don't, you know, that's amazing. The point is this, is that when Jesus brings the teaching and brings the wine, he brings the good stuff. Here's what I was thinking of as Mike was preaching last week. That sermon on apostasy and salvation and assurance of salvation was no grape juice sermon. That was good wine. And you need to listen to that if you haven't yet. It's available on YouTube. It's available on our website. You can even listen to him at twice the speed if you don't have time to hear the whole thing. (laughs) But you need that to get this, you need that. But we don't have time to go do that again, so you have time to go do it on your own. As you look at this, you recognize in this portion of the letter we find great inspiration, I hope you do. I find hope revealed here. I find history recounted and and a surety of God and who he is provided. First, what it means is you have to look back at verses 11 and 12. So I am gonna go back to verses 11 and 12 that were covered last week because they become transitioned to this week. Look at verse 11 and 12, Hebrews chapter six. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Mike mentioned earlier about the promises of God, mentioned earlier about, you know, we, we've got ministries that have been developed over many, many years. Uh, you, got, you got men's groups called Promise, promise Keepers. You got promises here, there, and everywhere. And, 
And what I want you to remember today, if, you, if you're a note taker, and I hope you are, and for our students in our student ministry, I'm telling you now, uh, we got some journals on order for you that are coming. That means that when we give those to you in the next couple of weeks, we expect you to bring them to church with you, with your open Bible or your tablet or your phone, with your scripture available, and a pen in hand, and to take notes on the sermons, because we believe that if you write down what you're hearing, even just a portion, or if you draw out, I've even had students do this, and adults, draw a picture of what's being preached, you will retain more than just hearing and so those journals will be here for you. And if you're writing it today, if you have a place to write it, if you want to pull out one of those offering envelopes and open it up like we used to, just write it there. There are three things to remember. One, it's the inherited promises of God, inherited promises. Secondly, the certain promises. And lastly, we'll close with those unchanging promises. But let's look at the inherited promises. The writer speaks of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises, leading to this question, what promises? I inherit promises from ancient days. What promises? The promises of the one who is beautiful, grand, and faithful. The promises of life, abundant and full. For that's what Christ said he came to give. The promises that were revealed in Jesus Christ, but given to those who came thousands of years prior to Christ's birth. The Old Testament promises, also known as the covenants between God and his people, are unbelievable and incredible, and what a gracious gift they are. The one referenced by the writer of Hebrews here is called the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to Abraham. Now, in the first book of the Bible, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we see the character of Abram. Abram and his wife Sariah, or Sarai, I don't, ever, I don't know anybody that knows how to say it correctly. I've heard it 18 different ways. But Abram and Sarai, whose names are changed later to Abraham and Sarah, it's the same people, but he's still Abram at this point. We see Abram set out from the city of Ur, which is a pagan city, meaning everybody there is worshiping another god mostly, and they are heading to what is known as the land of Canaan. God gave him that instruction to abandon it all and leave, and so he does so. He, he is then on that journey and delayed for a number of years in a place called Haran. I know that for some of you don't care about place names, but others, it's going to help you connect some dots here. So in Haran, he's staying there in Haran until his father, who came along with him, Terah, dies. Abram and his wife Sarah have been married for many, many years. They are on up in age now, but they have no children of their own. And Abram was 75 when he left Haran with his wife and his servants, and they were still childless. And this must be remembered when we hear of God's promise, his covenant with Abraham. God promised he would make Abraham, or Abram, the father of a great nation of descendants, and that God himself would bless all the peoples on the earth through this nation that would come from Abram. And this promise was made to a man, amazingly, that had no kids, no children at all. Now, I know sometimes you go, yeah, but like they lived like a long, long time back then. It, yeah, so they lived a long, long time. He's still 75. I mean, there's really, at 75 laps around the sun. That's not, well, were the years the same? The years were the same, 75 years. So, so I'm not going to call you out, but all you 75-year-olds that are about to have a baby to come home, think about that. <laughs> now, yeah, yeah, it's frightening. God reiterates his promise when Abram and his nephew Lot are then separated. Some of you know the story, others of you don't, but, but let me just kind of jump into this. He has a nephew named Lot. He didn't have his kids, but he had his nephew, and they're about to separate because they can't be in the same land. There's too much, you know, sometimes families love each other more when they don't live in the same state. So that's what happened. 
Genesis 13, it says in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. What a great promise to an old man with no kids. You're gonna have more kids then there's dust on the earth. You're gonna have more descendants than can be counted. You're, you, you know, if they tried to, your, your family tree would blow up the servers of Ancestry.com. It wouldn't work. That's the promise. And the Hebrew believers that are receiving this letter, let me tell you what they knew. They knew the promise to Abraham. They knew the story of Abraham. They likely knew more about the stories of the Old Testament than they knew of the stories of Jesus Christ. There's still stories about Jesus they probably hadn't even been told yet. But they grew up going to synagogue. They grew up going to Sabbath school. They knew the stories of Abraham and of Moses and of Noah and of all Daniel and Joseph and all those Old Testament characters. And following this little passage in Genesis 13, you see even more reiterations of God's promise. At some point, as Abraham, you've got to like, God, you've been promising me this for a long time. And if this was 21st century, here's what my, let me just say, it's not just 21st century, because there's a little bit of a side story there where Sarah kind of gets a plan for, well, you know, you're too old to have a kid, so here's a handmaiden, we can kind of work this deal, and this, that, and the other. Has that not, is that not just human nature? God's made a promise, and when it doesn't happen on our timetable, we try to get ahead of the game and make it work by our own medical plans, or our own experimental plans, or our own relocations or whatever we got to do. We'll make it work because obviously God needs our help, right? That's human nature. There's a lot here. We won't go into all of that, but, but look at this promise. Verse chapter six. I mean, let's go back to uh, chapter 15 of Genesis. Let me just read this quickly. Behold, the word of God <clears throat> came to him, Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. I guess it's like, hey, you remember when I told you there's all this dust on the earth? You're going to have more kids than that? Apparently, you didn't hear me. You didn't listen. So now look up and look at the stars. See all the stars in the sky? Look up there. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be, he says. The promise of God was made. It was reiterated over and over again, and it seemed like a pipe dream. The old man and his old wife were quickly losing hope in the fact that they could even physically have a child. I mean, if they'd, have, if they'd have gone to the doctors over and over again, the doctors would have finally said, you need another plan. You need to just, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. She was beyond childbearing age, and he and she were just accumulating orbits around the sun, getting older and older, and it was like the promise was made, but is it, did he mean it? Did we miss him? Maybe we misunderstood God. Maybe he wanted us to do something besides wait. But ultimately, it did happen. And the fulfillment of the promise of God came. It is is a promise inherited. The promise to Abraham is a promise to us. A promise to Abraham is a promise to the Hebrew believers in the first century. Look at chapter six again in Hebrews, verses 13 through 15. I'll reiterate this. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That's a weird image, right? So God made a promise and swore by himself, saying, surely... I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
Abraham, having patiently waited. Now, now we also know that there were days he wasn't very patient, but forgiveness is a wonderful gift. And he was reset, and he waited, and it was fulfilled. But let me back up just a little bit about that. He made a promise, and since there was, God made a promise, and since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And the imagery that comes to my mind is the imagery of a courtroom. When a witness is brought on, and, and, and in the old days, you know, you had to put your hand on the Bible and hold your hand up. I don't even know if they, I don't think they use the Bible anymore in some places, but you, you, you make a pledge, you make a swear, a swear, an oath to the state that you will, everything you say in that courtroom will be what? The truth? The whole truth? Nothing but the truth? So help me God. Isn't that odd? Even in a pluralistic, anti-religious community, we still kind of throw that in there every now and then. So help me God. And in many cases, the Bible is used or historically has been used in those moments. In many cases, even as we have in a political season, a new congressman or congresswoman or senator or president or even a justice who comes on, whether nationally or locally or in a state office, there is a a moment where the oath is taken. And in many cases, uh, if I were to ask you, you know, on a quiz, hey, what book do they put their hand on? And many of you would say the Bible. And while that's true in most cases, it's not true in every case. I found that interesting. I often often wondered, what if somebody puts their hand on the Bible, says, so help me God, they're an atheist, don't care about God at all. What what does that mean? I mean, I don't believe a word you're saying anyway at that point, right? Because you're just making an empty oath to a God you don't believe exists. Doesn't mean he's not hearing your oath. But not everybody, every now and then I'm going to give you just some information in case you are, in case you're trapped on a bus to youth camp and the YouTube trivia is on the screen and you need to know the answers. I'm feeling this happened just recently. So if they were to say, hey, name some famous people who took oaths of office but didn't use a Bible, here's just some for you. Just, this, this isn't you know, worth hearing, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. President John Quincy Adams did not use a Bible but had his hand on a book of law called the Volume of Laws. President Theodore Roosevelt, when he was uh, sworn in as president following the assassination of uh, President McKinley, had no book at all, just, just took an oath. President Lyndon Johnson, sworn in on the airplane leaving Dallas, I think it was, after Kennedy's assassination, was, you know, a Texan, a Protestant, but the only book they had on the plane was a Catholic book of prayer, so that's what he swore on, which he didn't, it was just what they used. Congressman Keith Ellison used a copy of the Quran. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who's a Hindu, used a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, which I probably mispronounced. The U.S. ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, Susie Levine, recently swore her oath upon a Kindle, a digital reader open to the 19th Amendment of the Constitution. Senator John Ossoff, Ossoff took his oath upon a book of Old Testament Hebrew scripture as a Jewish individual, and Congressman Robert Garcia used a copy of a Superman comic. So, Interesting. Oaths and promises. So you you already got opinions about all those people because they didn't use the Bible, but I'm going to tell you what good would it have been for them to use the Bible when they probably put as much faith in Kal-El and Clark Kent as they do in Christ. There are more. You can Google them. 
suffice to say, not everyone holds to the inerrancy and viability of Scripture, even when taking oaths. Thus, in many cases, the concept of the oath has been watered down, and for many, has become meaningless. The list is seemingly growing of things that we grew up believing are and are now questioned. The list is growing of things that we believe should be, but for many decades taken for granted, but are not held to be true any longer. There's a lot of, lot of shaky ground in our culture today, globally, about what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, and this whole concept of true for you but not true for me seems to have a really good footing in many people's lives. Well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me, not recognizing that there's no way that's possible. That is maybe, uh, I mean, if that's how you believe, if you've said those things, and then, uh, then I pray that you will be offended shortly, but get over it, that is a dumb thing to say. Because what you're saying is there's something that is true but isn't true at the same time. And if something is true, it must be true for all people, all circumstances, and all places, or it's not true at all. It's circumstantial. And when you start changing what true is, then definitions of everything change. And, and it kinda, it kinda, we're kind of in this culture. It reminds me of a statement my, my youth professor at seminary said back in the 90s. He would say, that individual's feet are firmly planted in midair. And I didn't quite understand what he meant back then because I'm not sure he may have been talking about me, but you kind of understand now what it means. And yet what we have as believers is not just a sandy foundation, but a solid footing from which to hold on to and to gain hope, a truth that resounds through the ages, that, that which is right, good, and true for all people and all cultures throughout the world and across time, for if it is not infinitely true, it is not true at all. The promises of God were made to Abraham, and the Hebrew believers were reminded that they were to inherit these as rightful heirs. Through faith, the promises of a great nation, a people surrendered, a God-glorifying kingdom would ultimately come. For the Gentile believers who had been brought into uh, the great family of God, these Gentiles that our children learned about, we were talking about Cornelius as a great example, that Simon Peter went to visit and said, don't call unclean that which is clean, for Jesus is for all people. And when that was presented to them, even the Gentiles who are brought back in through Christ, we are the great grafted branches into God's wonderful family tree. And therefore, we, as children of God, receive the same inheritance based on the same promise secured by the same name. It is, it is an inherited promise, but it is also a certain promise. So there are certain promises. If you're looking for point two, there you go. The certain promises of God are fulfilled in heaven. Heaven is accessible through faith by grace. What's the old song? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. There's more, just in that phrase, there, there is more deep theology than you probably even know. For when Christians are called to die to self, we are, resonate with that truth. See, to get to heaven, there is a narrow doorway a narrow doorway into a heavenly realm that is wide enough for one person to enter at a time, for the doorway is a person. A person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. When you start clicking that crowds don't come to Jesus, but individuals do, that resonates in my heart today. Because modern Christianity celebrates 
success by its ability, in many cases, to draw a crowd. But success in Christianity is when the individual surrenders and becomes a child of God, one at a time. Jesus is that way, and it is a condition of faith to inherit this certain promise. This is the key which opens the door to salvation to each and every one of us. I'm not sure where I was when this conversation, one of our students asked, said, is there, talking about the unforgivable sin. Is there an unforgivable sin? The Bible speaks of a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and there's some really false teachings about that that are floating around online. But when it came down to it, is there such a thing as an unforgivable sin? Well, the simple answer is, yeah, absolutely. There is a sin you can commit that God will not forgive. The sin is to reject Jesus Christ and to not surrender to him as your Lord and Savior. I mean, you can do everything else that is good and right in your own mind and even under a list of things that you think you need to do, but if you reject Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never surrendered your life to him, you don't even know where the door is anymore. I mean, that, that's the only way to heaven, through Christ. Hmm. God's promises are certain, and they are sure. And that little phrase, God's promises are certain and sure, doesn't that sound like something a preacher would say? I mean, that sounds like something you, you know, that's preacher speak. Well, maybe it is, but I believe it to be true. And the reason we have to be reminded that God is certain, that that promise is sure and Christ is certain, is because we are a forgetful people. Now that may sound offensive, but let me ask you this. Have you ever misplaced your keys? Anybody? Anybody at all? Anybody misplaced your keys? Some of you have misplaced them. We've got them here. I don't know how you got home, but um, they've been here for months. We put them in a room up front. Somewhere there's a Honda that no one has a key for anymore. I don't know. We, Misplace your keys. You ever misplace your glasses and you're wearing them like that on your head? We're getting a little, little personal now, aren't we? Yeah. You ever come home from shopping and your spouse goes, where's the kid? And you realize you misplaced them. They're still at the store. <laughs> not, not good. Don't do that today. Um, we are forgetful. And sometimes we can be sure about something and be totally wrong. Did you know that? We can be absolutely sure and be totally wrong. You ever heard of something called the certainty principle? So I was reading an article in uh, Scientific American because why wouldn't I? So I'm reading this article. And in this article, uh, they were interviewing some cognitive uh, scientists and some really smart people. And uh, they were talking about the certainty principle and the way that sometimes you can be so sure about something that is wrong that when you're finally corrected, it is cemented in your brain and you will definitely remember it now. Let me tell you how this works. This article's a few years old. The certainty principle and hypercorrection from a cognitive nature suggests this. I just really wanted to say that because it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. Suppose I were to ask you, and don't answer out loud because some of you know the answer, but suppose I were to ask you, what is the capital of Canada? And let's just say you answered Toronto. And I asked you, are you certain it's Toronto? And you go, absolutely certain it's Toronto. And I say, how certain are you it's Toronto? And you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% certain it's Toronto. 
I mean, if your life depended on it, you would say that Toronto is the capital of Canada. And you go, absolutely. Then when I said, that's not right. Toronto's not the capital of Canada, but Ottawa's the capital of Canada. According to neuroscientists and those who study brains, by being corrected at a level of your, where your certainty was so cemented on an answer you just knew had to be true, but when revealed you were totally wrong, what happens is in the synapses of your brain, the new right answer gets burned in. And it becomes super less likely you will ever say Toronto is the capital of Canada again. Because now, whether you were embarrassed or you were just so right, that you're so, so proven to be so wrong and what you knew to be so right, you, you, you've got it seared into your psyche. Cognitive psychologist Janet Metcalf, who at Columbia University says, you will likely never forget the capital of Canada just because of this. Now, the Holy Spirit knows how this works. God knows how we're wired. So God, being smarter than any of our scientists and not afraid of science, for he is the creator of all of it, when it comes to this kind of cognitive reality, he knows even more than scientists do. And thus, the writer of the book of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds the readers of that which they already know and that which they knew and that which they had memorized and corrects them of what they now thought they knew to remind them what has been true and remains true and is always true. Why would he do this? For the glory of God and for our mental retention of truth so that we would know. The learners need reminding of the certainty principle in regards to God's promises. It's kind of like the Christian who goes, well, I know, I know God, is, God loves me, but I just don't feel it. Well, I know God's promises are true, but I just don't sense it. I, I know I'm supposed to be doing, but I don't feel God. Knowing is huge. The question is, do you really know? Hebrews 6, verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God's promises are made on himself. And we can hold them to be certain. And lastly, believe them to be unchanging. Hebrews 6, verses 18 through 20, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into an inner place or the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God, it is impossible for God to lie. We will amen that and go, I don't want my God to lie. I want my God to tell the truth. But you and I, all, we all know people who will claim, I'm just, I'm just a truth teller. I'm just telling you the truth. But they tell truth like Simon Cowell tells singers they can't sing. They tell it rudely. They tell it pointedly. They tell it arrogantly. And they tell it to put you in your place because you're an idiot. God tells truth. Laced with grace and cemented in love for his glory and your good. 
God's not beating you up, but he, <laughs> he may knock you down so that you will look up to him and know the truth. If you search online for broken promises, just Google broken promises, you initially find like three pages related to US presidents. Then you find more pages of political promises made during election years for every office ever run for. And then you find hits regarding marriage. And this little thing we called vows before the Lord. And the broken promises, till death do us part, some of you know how painful it is when till death do us part becomes till someone else comes along that's younger and better looking. Until I can't stand it anymore. See, we live in the world of broken promises. We understand broken promises. It's like there's an infinity level of broken promises. People make promises, people break promises. This is what people do. People change the conditions of their promises. People justify their broken promises. Why do people do this? Because people break promises because people are broken. That's why, you ever watch these, these shows where, like Survivor, which is a game show. It's just like a really dirty version of Price is Right. That's all it is. But it's a, it's a game show where people make promises, but everyone who watches the show knows that it's just a bunch of liars justifying their lies so they can get to the end of the game and win the million dollars or whatever they give away, right? It's like the celebration of justified lying. It's just a game. Well, that would be wonderful if it remained in reality television. The problem is it comes into what is real life. And people do the very same thing. But I've often seen on these shows where people make promises and they, you know, I swear on my dead grandmother that it's true. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, what? What does that even mean? I put that in the same category of the universe wants me to do something. It's a big, it's a big nothing burger. Of, that's all it is. I swear on my dead relative. What is, I don't even know, what is that? How do you do that? That's why God says, I make a promise and I swear on me. Because I'm not moving, I'm not changing, and I am the top. When we seek to understand the divine promises from the divine, it is super challenging to realize that the unchanging God we claim to worship is just that, unchanging. Meaning that the God you read of in Genesis is a God who exists now. His promises are unchanging. It is impossible for God to lie. The writer says that. That harkens back to Numbers 23, 19. So you've got to remember, it's a Jewish group of people, Jewish Christians. The writer is Jewish. In Hebrew, he's writing and he's referencing a lot of Old Testament. So he says this. And, and I guarantee you, all these people that are in the church that went to Sabbath school and synagogue their entire childhood and teenage years are remembering when the rabbi had them memorize these books. And Numbers 23, 19 comes to mind. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He, has he said and will he not do do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 
the writer's saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you already know this. You're choosing to forget. Hear this, friend. God does not break his promises. Every single promise of God is fulfilled. To the child of God needing certainty, this is gold. To the one far from God desiring life, hope, answers, and all of that, this is the treasure you don't even know you've been looking for, but you're looking for it. This is it, this is the answer, you found it. X marks the spot, this is the treasure. God is not man, nor made in our image. Maybe that's our biggest problem. Maybe we will declare that we are image bearers of God, humanity made in the image of God, but we create a God in our mind that is little more than a God made in our image. But that's not God. God is sovereign, holy, secure, infinite, and available through a very narrow door. And since Jesus is for everyone, Everyone who responds to Jesus and comes through Jesus, through repentance of sin, believing that he died on the cross and shed his blood as a payment for the sin of you and me and of humanity, can receive the forgiveness and be adopted into God's family and inherit all these great promises. The invitation is that. As we close singing about the promises of God, may it be more than just a song we sing, but may it be a message that resonates in our heart. Father, I thank you for who you are and that you're true from beginning to end, and you are true from history past, eternity past, to eternity in the future, and that definitely you are true today in this present moment. For all the questions that come and all the what ifs and yeah buts and all that come to our mind when it comes to talking about inerrancy and immutability and the sovereignty that you hold to, Help us to quit trying to make you in our own image, but to surrender fully to you as the God who is, the God who always has been. And I thank you that there is a way. And for those that know the way and have already received you, I thank you for my family members in this room today and those even tuning in online. But for those who have yet to say yes to you, may today be their birthday, their new birthday, the day of salvation. Thank you for all that you are and all that you do in Jesus' name.